HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, your host for Speaking Broadly. Today, I'm incredibly excited to introduce you to somebody who's built a brand on bubbles, Jacqueline Bissett, and badass women. She's got a serve-your-own popcorn DIY with salty toppings and extraordinary champagne. But before we hear about both affordable and astronomical champagnes, I'm going to talk to you about what I got to eat this week. I had an incredible meal a couple of days ago at a restaurant that has fantastic pedigree. It comes from the same Chicago family as the Ocheval Burger, one of my favorite burgers. The place is called Four Charles Prime Rib, and it's on Charles Street in New York City's West Village. The restaurant is the shape of a safety deposit box. It's narrow, it's not too long, it's not too tall, and it's pleasingly dim. There are curly, curvy red leather banquettes that back up to the wall, which are covered with salon-style paintings. It is mainly a meat den. But somehow, even I, who am sort of vegan till six, loved this place and thought it was sexy and fun. So the namesake prime rib, that was really good, but it was the 45 day dry-aged bone-in sirloin steak that totally stole and I think probably could have stopped my heart. It's seared in an 800 degree oven which means that the outside is ridiculously extra crusty crispy and then you get into the meat which is incredibly juicy medium rare. I have to say I didn't eat the entire thing because I also had um, that prime rib. We ordered about, and I 
kid you not, 38 ounces of meat, and there were two of us. So I brought some home, and my husband got the best leftovers of his life. So if you're feeling meaty and manly, go head to for Charles Prime Rib. Now, what goes really well with Prime Rib? How do we feel about champagne and Prime Rib? Jen Pelka, who is the owner of The Riddler in San Francisco and a PR firm called Magnum PR. I feel like it should be called Magnum PI. Well, it sort of is. (laughs) It's close enough. Um, Is my guest today. And we're going to learn about building brands, girl confidence, and girl power. So the, the Riddler is one of the most elegantly conceived bars I have ever been in. It is so thoughtful from the gold leaf ceiling to the crystal buckets to the champagne list. Jen, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. And so nice of you to say. And tell me, when you were building this restaurant, were you thinking brand, brand, brand? Like, what can I do to make this all cohere? Like, how did this restaurant bar come apart? About. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I um, I was so excited about the idea of opening a champagne bar. The idea originally came about many years ago when I was at a champagne tasting for Veuve Clicquot, and I learned what riddling was. Um, it is a step in the champagne-making process in which the bottles are turned every day so that the sediment goes to the neck of the bottle, and um, eventually that sediment is removed, and then the champagnes turn into crystal clear wines. And this was a process that was invented by the widow Clicquot, the Veuve Clicquot. And apparently during this tasting, they told us what, what Riddling was, and I said, ooh, light bulb. I, one day I want to <laughs> open a champagne bar, and I'm going to call it the Riddler. So um, over many years, um, the many touch points and details of the restaurant developed and it certainly was all very much anchored in the brand of the Riddler. And so let's talk about what the elements are. Like the typography is so beautiful. Um, I mean, every, everything along the way, what feeling were you trying to create? What, you know, who did you want to be there? Sure. I think, um, at the end of the day, I wanted to build a bar that was the kind of place that I wanted to hang out. Um, San Francisco is a wonderful town and is so much fun, but, um, there aren't a ton of old spaces. And I found this corner space in the heart of Hayes Valley that was a cafe for 27 years and has been a restaurant since um, all the way back to 1912. And so there's all this beautiful built-in woodwork all throughout the space. And I really wanted people to just feel sexy. I wanted a dark, (laughs) sexy, beautiful space where people could feel like they could dress up a little bit, have a glass of champagne, um, and be transported to another time. Now, you had 33 people giving you money. <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> and they were all women. Was it a benefit to have them all be women? So I decided that I wanted to have all female investors early on in my fundraising process. I had a lead investor who put in about half of the money that we needed to open the doors, and she happened to be a woman. <laughs> Yes. Lucky for her. Uh, And as I started looking at the list of people who I wanted to talk to about the project, so many of those people were women, women. And as I kept on speaking with potential investors, once I decided that I was going to position it as an all female funded place, I would have conversations with people where there was literally like a, a change in their 
in the way that they sat, the way that they were thinking about the project, because all of a sudden the project became mission-driven around the idea that this was a girl power kind of place. And do you think women invest differently? I do. I think um, I think that most of the women who decided to invest in the Riddler, only one of whom has ever invested in a restaurant before, I think many of them wanted to be part of a community. And so financial rewards were certainly something that was of interest, but I think they were really excited about the idea of spending their money, investing their money in a way that supported a larger mission around female empowerment and being a part of an incredible community of female entrepreneurs. The women-centered business doesn't stop with the people who gave you money. It's also the uh, people behind the bar. And so you also have a women-driven staff. I do. Um, we obviously have some guys on the team as well. <laughs> I think it would be illegal for us to be an all-women all staffed place, but we always look for talented women, and I think a lot of talented women come to us because of the, our investment structure. But um, our chef is a woman. She's an amazing young woman named Zoe Deeg. She worked for the Delfina Group for eight years and opened many of their pizzerias and is deeply, deeply passionate about um, food and pickling and um, all sorts of fun things like popcorn and, and tater tot waffles. And, and stay tuned because you're going to hear later in the show about how a waffle maker can really transform a bar. It, it absolutely can, especially when you only have about 100 square feet for your kitchen. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Zoe is a woman. Um, our beverage director and GM is a woman. Um, almost every design detail in the space was done by a woman. So we have gold leaf ceilings, as you mentioned, that was done by a woman. We have a beautiful um, champagne mural outside done by a woman. Our graphic designer, Danielle Moore, is incredibly talented. A woman. Um, the people who did our architectural plans are women. So, uh, you do know, you it's... Th do you think that each of them in each discipline brought something different because of that female point of view? Or it just, you, you love all their work. Clearly you love all their work. But was there an extra something? I think so. I think all of them put in a little extra oomph because mm -hmm. they knew that it was part of this larger process, this larger project that they wanted to be a part of. Can we talk about the mural? I just love... On your wall, there is a gigantic bottle of champagne. It's almost like you stand under it and you're getting a champagne shower. That's the idea. <laughs> I'm so glad. It's golden shower? Was that what you had in mind? Not quite. No. But, um, maybe of a different sort. <laughs> yeah, it's a really beautiful bottle. Um, it was modeled after some vintage um, champagne bottles that we found photos of. And um, it has a beautiful crest, essentially, that has the Riddler logo. And eventually, one day, we would love to produce a private label champagne with the label modeled after the one that we have on the mural on the side of the wall. Okay, so you're painting the future on your walls, oh, and, you're, yes. and now you're going to go <laughs> live up to it. Yeah. The details in the restaurant, like the um, the champagne bucket, I, I've heard you say that you want to respond with um, sort of the uh, service to the individual you're serving. Do you want to t talk about how you choose, you know, what glasses to use with your customers? Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, most of our champagnes we serve in traditional wine glasses. We use, use Riedel white stemmed wine glasses. Um, and we typically use 
wine glasses because we believe that champagne is a wine, just like everything else. Um, but we do have a lot of guests that come in. They're interested in drinking out of flutes or coupes or Zalto burgundy stems. Um, so we those are the four types of wine glasses that we use. Um, we really focus the decision around which wine glasses we're going to serve to each of our guests based off of kind of anticipating their needs and, and imagining what they might want to be drinking and why they might want to drink it. So for example, if we have a baby shower in, we will always serve the woman who is the host of the baby shower. We will serve her champagne out of a hand cut crystal Belarusian coupe because it is so spectacular, so special um, and photographs beautifully and makes that guest of honor feel really taken care of. Um, but if it is a couple Psalms who are in drinking some special club champagne and getting really geeky, we will definitely serve them their champagne in Burgundy from Zalta, which is um, this beautiful hand uh, mouth blown crystal company that is the most delicate glassware you can possibly imagine. Picking it up, it feels feather light and swirling the champagne um, is really like this sensory experience that you can't get through any other glassware. So glassware is essential. What about breakage? Uh, are you <laughs> scared every time a glass goes down on that table or goes into the dish rack? We, you know, uh, it is terrifying, and all of the glassware is very expensive. <laughs> but I think it's just a cost of doing business, you know? Uh, you can't be so nervous about serving your guests that, uh, you know, being so worried about the glassware breaking. Uh, it's, you know, just like having a party. you gotta, you got to roll with the punches. <laughs> I think you've created an environment that really does feel like a fantastic party. At the same time as you're running this amazing bar, you have grown an entire PR company. I am dazzled by your multitasking. How do you do both? Oh, thank you so much, Dana. Um, Well, I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to the teams that I have working, uh, both on the Riddler side and with Magnum PR. And so Magnum started, I just started as a consultant uh, for my fiance's restaurant, Suvla, which he has, he now has three of them. They're Greek restaurants in San Francisco. And I was doing PR on the side and uh, was really interested in telling his story to as many people as possible and evangelizing on his behalf with regards to Greek wines and Greek food in San Francisco. And we found pretty quickly in San Francisco that there was a need for young operators who ran really cool restaurants to have great PR representation. Basically, publicists who were working on their behalf, especially on the national side here in New York, um, to tell their stories. Because as you know, when you live in New York, it's hard to find out about anything that's going on outside of the the four walls of Manhattan and Brooklyn. And, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that. Oh, really? I oh. think it's like, I, I think at least when I was living here, um, you know, the times when I would experience other cities or when I went there and it would be only for a couple days. And so I really see our role on the Magnum side as um, promoting what is so cool and exciting about what's happening in our city in San Francisco. You're a true SF booster. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the key to excellent PR is? Uh, let's say it's storytelling. How do you tell the stories? I think um, I always like to start from where the writer is coming from, what they're working on, what they're interested in. I pride myself and talk to our team all the time about really getting to understand what people's point of view is and really deeply understanding that a writer, a journalist, an editor, what they write about, what they report on is an extension of who they are as a, as a person and is part of their identity. And so if we can find areas of passion for that writer and can figure out who 
within our client list has a story that may be a good fit for them, those are the stories that we should talk to them about. And it's not about just like blasting them with press releases or um, information that everyone gets the same level of access. It's about really finding the right writer, the right publication, and the right story within a restaurant. So if you're trying to do your own PR, right, you can't hire a PR firm, what's your best advice? Talk to everyone you know including people who you think have no interest in what you're talking about, <laughs> about what you're doing. Um, I mean, constantly be self-promoting and do it in a way <laughs> that is as interesting as possible. Um, again, I mean, ask people what they're working on, find out as much as you can about them, learn as much as you can about what they're working on and see if you might have an area that might be a fit. But don't be embarrassed to talk about what you're working on. What you're working on is something you're really passionate about and likely something you're very good at. I've spoken to many women on the show or off air when they say, I can talk about my business, but I really can't talk about myself. It's, it's painful to me to do that. And I think that's one reason that women don't have quite as much visibility because they just, they hit that wall. They just can't cross over and talk about themselves. Yeah. For some reason that has never been a problem for me. <laughs> <laughs> that leads to my question about confidence. You are enormously confident. The notion, okay, you're making a face that makes me feel good. Like maybe perhaps there's something in there that's, you know, not all, um, <clears throat> all balls out, but how did you have the confidence to open a restaurant when you'd never done it before? Start a company when you'd never done that before? I think it probably at the end of the day comes down to my parents and the way that I was raised and it was always told that I could do whatever I wanted to and just seeing people around me take risks and have a willingness to fail and a willingness to learn from those mistakes and at the end of the day everything in the world that we see has been built by a human who has spent the time and energy to create that thing. And so why should any of us feel any different? Like why, if you can dream it, you can do it. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> you mean, you're like, you see it, there are chairs, there are restaurants. Why couldn't it be my chair or my Absolutely. restaurant? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So yeah, I think it's just all about having a good idea and taking risks. And if you fail, I mean, move on and start something else. <laughs> Some people I think don't feel like they, they have the idea um, you know, or necessarily the support, but that has not been a, a challenge that I, I also think there's something really valuable in having a side hustle and having like, if you're too nervous to go off completely on your own to start a new company, stay at your corporate job where you have your benefits and your consistent paycheck and spend some of your time in your off hours on a passion project that you are really thrilled about and start taking those risks. Don't, I also advise people not to take a ton of money. Uh -huh. um, there's, I don't think there's a huge reason, especially living in Silicon Valley, people just raise literally millions and millions of dollars and then it's gone in an instant. Um, I think there's something valuable about building a business that fundamentally is profitable from the ground up and that you can bootstrap and start with, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks and grow that pile of money until it's a larger pile of money and then keep <laughs> reinvesting in that business. Um, but having a side hustle, I think is really powerful. Yeah. I call it the shark tooth, um, you know, prophecy. Like you grow that second row of teeth while you've got that first one biting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Love that. Love it. Um, we're going to take a 
quick commercial break. And when we come back, I'm going to be talking to Jen Pelka about champagne. So I know you're going to want to hear more about that and her mentors. We're also going to hear from a woman who has a golden palette. Jacques Pepin said she had the best taste buds he'd ever seen. She's going to tell us the one condiment you need to try right now. We'll be back. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Welcome back. This is your host, Dana Cowan, on Speaking Broadly, and I'm here with Jen Pelka of Magnum PR and The Riddler in San Francisco. Jen, you have made it clear that if you dream it, it can happen. And frankly, if you draw it, you can put it on the side of a building, you can make it happen. Are there mentors, people who you look up to, who have shown you, in addition to your parents, what it means to be a great business person? Oh, yes, absolutely. I would say probably first and foremost is Danielle Ballou. Um, I worked for Danielle for many years. Uh, my first job working for Danielle was as a stage in the kitchen on Saturdays when I was like 22 years old um, at Danielle. And I had never cooked in a kitchen before. I'd never even worked in a restaurant. Uh, what made you want to do that Saturday <laughs> job? <laughs> um, I had moved to New York and was falling in love with restaurants and had seen chefs in whites in a dining room in a way that I'd never seen them before. I was I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and um, chef-driven restaurants weren't as big of a thing as they are here in New York. And I just loved the restaurant experience. And so I had heard that it was possible to get a stage and the idea of this stage thing. And this was before, <laughs> like, Top Chef. So, you know, we didn't all know all the terms. Um, and I um, met a guy at a bar, actually. I was at Schiller's, and there was a guy reading a book at the bar. He was reading The Perfectionist about a Michelin three-star chef who lost a star and committed suicide. That's a very sad story. Very, very sad story. But I saw that this guy was reading this book about chefs, and I said, oh, excuse me, are you a chef? And it just so turned out that he was the executive sous chef at Danielle. No way! Yeah. And I was like, oh, can I come work for you? He said, well, give me a call next week. So I called him the following week, and he said... Sure thing. Come in on Saturday. Black pants, black shoes, white shirt. Bring your knives. <laughs> and, and you're like, what knives? I literally had one knife. It was from Crate and Barrel. It was this like terrible chef's knife, and I wrapped it up in a in a side towel with a hair tie around it. It's so embarrassing now. Uh, and walked into Danielle, and he kind of walked me around, introduced me to people, and then put me on the canopy station because somebody had called out sick, um, and the. 
a, a really incredible story. I was, um, they had me peeling Eckerton Hill Farm tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes. I'd never seen tomatoes that looked like this before. Yellow Were they bumpy? Bumpy. Because those are really hard to work with. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I did not know that you could peel a tomato. <laughs> uh, so I, I can really relate to that. Did you blanch them? Like, did you? They had been scored and blanched. Okay, good. Which I didn't know what either of those words meant <laughs> at the time. Um, but so yeah, I'm back there peeling these tomatoes. And then Jean-Francois Bruel, who's the executive chef of Danielle, walked over to come shake my hand, as he does with every member of the team at the beginning of service. And he reached out to shake my hand, and I knocked over the entire tray of peeled tomatoes onto his feet. <gasps> That's horrible. <laughs> terrible. The worst. Basically the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in your first two minutes on, on your job. So he kind of shook his head and walked away. But uh, luckily, because that guy had called out sick, they had me work the canopy station during service. And I did not know any of the terms. I didn't know Brunoise or Gougere or Canel or Chervil. I didn't know what Chervil was, any of these things. And luckily, it was the lowest of the low on the lowest part of the totem pole. And I didn't screw anything up. And at the end of the night, I asked... Jean-Francois. I said, chef, can I please come back? I will peel potatoes. I will do whatever you want. I would love to come back next week. And he said, sure. Wow. That's because those tomatoes, that was um, between the money, the time. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So also doing business, just like breaking champagne. Glasses. That's right. You got to break a few tomatoes, drop a, drop a couple glasses <laughs> to make it all happen. Um, but so over uh, about five years, I ended up working very closely with Danielle, speaking of mentors. And um, eventually became his research assistant and helped him with all sorts of creative projects. And then when Danielle took over the Bocuse d'Or, the culinary competition, um, there was nobody to work on it. So he asked if I could help plan some of the, the first year's competition. And that's actually where we got to know each other, you and I. Um, and we hosted the first competition for U.S. competitors um, down at Disney World at Epcot Center. And memorable. Memorable. <laughs> Not scripted. Um, and so, yeah, we, that, that was where it all began. But I think you're actually going to tell me why he was a great mentor. So, okay. So, Danielle, I think, first and foremost, is a guy who says yes. He is so excited, so creative, so collaborative um, that when interesting ideas come his way, his tendency is to embrace them with a level of enthusiasm that's really exciting, I think, for the people who work with him and for him. And I have always been so inspired by that willingness to take risks and to get excited about new projects. Um, the other thing is that Danielle is incredibly generous. He is the kind of guy um, who, when there are guests in his restaurant, who he wants to treat in a special way. He wants them to feel enveloped by hospitality. Um, there's no warmer hug than one from Danielle on behalf of his, his kitchen. So uh, that's something that I have really embraced and something that I believe really firmly in, that if you are generous, people will be generous back to you. And did you bring inspirational quotes with you? I did. reading? I did. Let's take a moment and hear. Absolutely. So my inspirational reading is from one of my favorite books of all time. It's, it's really a short story that was originally published in The New Yorker by E.B. White called I love e. B. White. Here is New York. And um, it is a love letter to New York. So I will read you a short paragraph. So there are roughly three New Yorks. There is, first, the New York of the man or woman who is born here, who takes the city for granted and accepts its size and its turbulence as natural and inevitable. 
Second, there is the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by locusts each day and spat out each night. Third, there is the New York of the person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. Of these three trembling cities, the greatest is the last, the city of final destination, the city that is a goal. In this third city that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and incomparable achievements. Commuters give the city its title restlessness. Natives give it solidarity and continuity, but the settlers give it passion. And whether it's a farmer arriving from Italy to set up a small grocery store in a slum or a young girl arriving from a small town in Mississippi to escape the indignity of being observed by her neighbors, or a boy arriving from the Corn Belt with a manuscript in his suitcase and a pain in his heart, it makes no difference. Each embraces New York with the intense excitement of first love. Each absorbs New York with the fresh eyes of an adventurer. Each generates the heat and light to dwarf the consolidated Edison Company. As a born and bred New Yorker, I think that's beautiful. Why is that important to you? Um, I think New York is just such a magical place where you can dream the biggest dreams and achieve the, the biggest possible goals, create incredible art, collaborate with the most inspiring people. And it's a city that you're constantly reinventing yourself um, and constantly proving to yourself and to those around you that really anything is possible. So you take the sort of the feeling of New York and carry it with you wherever you go, because you've taken that dream and taken it with you to San Francisco and you've lived that, you know, New York can do anything but someplace else. I think that's true. We're going to be back with Jen in just a moment to hear about champagne. But first, we're going to talk to Tina Ulaki. Tina was the executive editor at Food & Wine magazine for decades. She has tasted literally thousands of new products. And today, she's going to pick one new favorite. Hey, Tina, are you there? I'm here. Hi, Tina. Hi, Dana. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm so happy to have you here. I have depended on your choices in food for so long, and I'm so delighted to share them now with all of the listeners. You have chosen one condiment that you think is going to transform so many different meals. What is that condiment? Well, it's always hard to pick one, but... Um, Particularly for you, Tina. <laughs> um, um, I picked the uh, new preserved lemon harissa from New York Shook which is a little Middle Eastern pantry company, not so little, a Brooklyn artisanal food company. Um, and they make amazing harissa, and they have this new version that's made with preserved lemon. So can you tell me, how is harissa made? Well, it's basically a puree. Um, it's a, a variety of chili peppers that are used, and then it's seasoned um, with spices, often uh, caraway, um, sometimes cumin, sometimes coriander, sometimes there's garlic in there. And the one great thing they've done now is they've added preserved lemons, which is a, a very traditional um, Middle Eastern condiment in its own right. Um, and I think they're, it's added a new dimension to their already amazing, amazing harissa. There are, a lot of, there are actually a lot of fantastic brands of harissa out there. This one just happens to be my favorite. And Tina, is it unusual to put the preserved lemon together with the harissa? Like, does that um, 
Because you could have just the lemon and just the harissa. But does it do something by you putting could. them together? I guess um, it saves it, you a step. It, it's very traditional to have them together. I mean, okay. you would use harissa as a condiment in a dish, say a tagine, um, maybe a couscous that had preserved lemon or a chicken dish that featured preserved lemon, and you would use the harissa just as a condiment on its own. But it's really it's just great that they put them together because not everybody has preserved lemons in their um, in their arsenal, and they have a very um, unique flavor. It it's it's aromatic. It's a little bit um, more pungent than just a straight lemon because they're just lemons that are cured in lemon juice and salt. Um, and it's generally just the peel that's used. But it, um, it, it adds a, a really wonderful tangy dimension to their, um, their sweet, not too fiery, but unbelievably richly flavored um, harissa as it is. So how would you use it? Um, obviously in a tagine, but I know that you're the the mistress, not the master, the, the mistress of <laughs> uh, interesting ways to use condiments. So how would you use it in an untraditional way? Um, well, I think you could just use it to um, up your game in so many ways. Like, basically, um, you could up your cocktail sauce game. You could up wow. your Bloody Berry game. You could, um, you know, just by adding, you could make a traditional cocktail sauce and add this harissa to it. You could mix it with um, mayo, and it makes an amazing dip for roasted vegetables. It makes an incredible dip for seafood. Um, it's also makes, if you mix it with mayo, it makes a fantastic slather. Mm. You slather it on a fish fillet and then roast it or broil it, and you end up with a beautiful glaze and a fantastic sauce at the same time. It's also like eggs love harissa. Um, you know, it's great in omelets. It's great in baked eggs. You could put it in deviled eggs. You could add it to your egg salad. Um, it, it's a really, really wonderful flavor note. It's like a one-stop flavor note. Um, you make a perfect pizza with it, with a, with hummus instead of cheese and instead of marinara and some grilled zucchini and a little dab of harissa on it. Okay, I, th- um, I think... Oh. I think that people now can see why you've chosen chosen this as your you know your favorite condiment, condiment today because there's so 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 many things that you can do with it. I'm just going to uh, spell it out for listeners who might have found it you know hard to hear. It's um, it's N Y and then S H U K, right, Tina? Exactly, that's the name of the company. N Y S H U K. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm ready to go out and and buy that. Um, And I think of all of those things, Jen, which would you make of all the things that um, Tina suggested? Oh, eggs, eggs, eggs. That was the first thing that jumped to mind for me. (laughs) Okay, eggs, eggs, eggs. I think I'd go pizza. Mm. But um, it all sounds great. Tina, thank you so much for coming on. And I know we'll catch up soon. Thank you for having me. Okay, looking forward. Jen. You could probably serve champagne with a lot of those dishes that oh, yeah. uh, Tina mentioned. How do you feel about champagne and fiery foods? I actually think it's a great compliment. You do? Um, you know, you've got to pick the right champagne, but I personally, I think you can pair champagne with nearly everything. I have and to say, being t- a timid wine pairer, I have two points of view. One, either it doesn't matter at all and I'm just going to drink what I like. Or champagne. Those are my two points of view. <laughs> and to me, those things are exactly the same. <laughs> um, so you have a, a, a smart list, and I say that because it's a limited list. You have about 100 champagnes on, 
Yep. Earless. We have about 100 champagnes by the bottle. By the bottle. Um, we do nine sparkling wines by the glass, um, three of which are champagnes, three of which are um, selections from around the world, and then three of which are rosé, some of which happen to be champagne. I like that it's not an endless list yeah. because it's very easy to get lost in an endless list. And I also like that you have some affordable options and I'm charmed by the fact that you have some like $2,500 oh, options. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we've got some really, really deep uh, verticals of very hard to find champagnes that we've sourced from private collections. Um, but we've also got, you know, sparkling Cremant de... Loire. So let's talk yeah. specifics because I'm interested actually on both ends. At the really expensive end, the rare, let's call it rare because sure. that's, that's the equation. What are, can you describe a couple of the champagnes you have that are very special and why they're yeah. so special? Um, my favorite category actually on the list is called Special Club, uh, which is a designation that winemakers in Champagne have created for themselves. Um, to be inducted into the special club, you have to be a grower producer, meaning that you grow your own grapes. And um, to make a special club wine, you have to have your wines voted on by other members of the special club, and they can only be in the very, very best years. So anything that is in this quote-unquote special club is the best expression of these small grower producers. And the thing that's so cool about it is that you can get their wines not in the special club, and then there is a particular bottling, which is this beautiful green squat bottle with a, an, an insignia sort of stamped into it. Um, and those are the special club bottles. So producers that are in that group that, you know, whose names are, are fairly well known are Pierre Gimonet, uh, Paul Roger, Pierre Peters, Paul Barra, Marc Abrart. Um, and so we serve some of their champagnes that are not in the special club, but the ones that are truly in the special club are some of the most sought after bottles. Um, and we have one of the largest collections in the United States. Um, our goal is to have all of the special clubs represented on our list. Um, most of them are not on the, the, you know, the traditional market. So we have to source them from what's called the gray market. Um, not quite black, but uh, <laughs> on its way, on the spectrum to black. And so a lot of that is buying them from private collections. And for people who don't know a lot about champagne, what's the way to distinguish an extraordinary champagne from an okay champagne? Um, well, I think one of the first things to know and to remember um, is that not all sparkling wine is champagne, of okay, course. that's a good place to start. Um, there are three grapes of champagne. There is Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Meunier. Um, and so it really comes down to what style you're interested in. Or do you want something that is lush and rich and oxidative? Do you want something that is lean and racy and zippy? Um, I tend to like the wines that have seen a lot of age and have... Um, a lot of character to them. So champagnes made in the style similar to Krug, for example, which uses all three of those grapes, and they never, um, they never tell you what exactly their makeup is. Um, but then there are some people who love um, like 100% Meunier champagne. So those are big, bold, very unusual champagnes. Or Blanc de Blanc champagnes, which are very elegant, and those are made with 100% Chardonnay. So uh, just like this any other... This is a other... lot of information. Let's, <laughs> let's dial back to make it simpler. So if you like a zippy champagne, what is an example of a zippy champagne? I think actually, even taking it back a step okay, further... let's keep going. ...is um, when you are shopping for champagne, find a store that you trust and find a wine seller who you trust and tell them what you're looking for. Um, similarly, just like if you're approaching a wine list, ask people. Um, don't be afraid to ask. 
Um, I would say look for producers whose names you recognize. Um, don't only go with the big houses. Um, look Those for- things are going to be in total conflict because you're going <laughs> to know the big houses and you're not going to know the, you know, you'll know the, and you won't know the little ones. But, um, okay, so I guess what you're saying is there's a wide range of styles and one isn't better than another. It's all about right. I mean, the reality taste. is, if you're getting champagne from champagne, it's probably going to be pretty good. Okay, and your distinction there is champagne versus sparkling wine. Correct. Yeah, which is, could be made anywhere. Yeah, it just has bubbles. Absolutely. So it could be in the champagne method. Yes. Yeah, method champagne was okay. Yeah. So you have the the incredible special club wines, but then you also have affordable champagnes, bubbles. Do you have, yep. What's your cheapest? Uh, actual champagne. We have um, a Cremant de Lemieux, which mm-hmm. is from the southernmost winemaking region in France, in the Languedoc. Um, that is a small grower producer, and on the list, it's something like forty dollars by the bottle. That's affordable. That's very affordable. Okay. And what about um, on the sparkling wine side? Tell us what are the different sparkling wines that excite you. Um, right now, I'm really interested in exploring varietals that you don't typically see in a sparkling format. So, for example, we've got a sparkling Gruner Veltliner made in the method Champenoise, the traditional champagne method from Austria, um, 100% Gruner, and it is delicious. It is super fun and racy, and um, it tastes grassy in the way that Gruner does. Um, it is great with popcorn, which is one of the things that we serve <laughs> at the Riddler, but it's also great with oysters or with, you know, shrimp cocktail. Um it is just fun and light. It's great. It's like a great picnic wine. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I'm excited, excited about sparkling Rieslings. Um, and who's making sparkling Riesling that you like? Um, I, actually, in um, in the U.S. right now, um, Herman Veemer has a really cool one. Um, and who's a winemaker yeah. in New York State? Yep, absolutely. So yeah, there are all sorts. Um, of sparkling Rieslings that are really fun. I'm pretty into exploring pet nats at the moment. So those are wines that are made with natural fermentation. Um, and some of my favorites are made by Michael Cruz in California. He also makes a traditional champagne method sparkling wine called Ultramarine, which is the most highly coveted uh, domestic sparkling wine at the moment. Um, but his pet nats are a little bit easier to find, and they're super fun. You were talking about popcorn. I actually am a popcorn obsessive. Popcorn is, you know, some people go into the freezer and they're ice cream eaters. I'm a popcorn eater. Like, I, oh, yeah. I make a lot of popcorn. <laughs> I like crunching. Some people are slimy people. Some people are crunchy people. <laughs> I am a crunchy person. So you have serve your own popcorn, which really gets to me. And then uh, great toppings. But let's talk about the food that you can't serve yourself. Let's yep. talk about your waffle iron. What are you guys making in that waffle iron? So we are making tater tot waffles in the waffle iron. Uh, we take literally store-bought Oreda tater tots. And I know, it's so I'm scandalized. scandalized. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we've tried all different kinds, and those are really the best. Um, and we put them in the waffle iron. We cook them until they're crispy and salty and um, like the best possible version of a tater tot that you can find because it's got extra nooks and crannies and we top them with the most luxurious toppings we can find so one of the most popular ones is with an herbed creme fraiche and smoked salmon caviar and lots of fine herbs so you've got the high low of the smoked salmon and caviar with the 
um, really comfortable tater tot. Uh, we also do one with grainy mustard and prosciutto and arugula and a hit of zippy lemon, um, which is so delicious. Another favorite is a soft-boiled egg and black truffles. Wow. Which is really the most luxurious and decadent brunch you could find. This is Hilo to the max. You have a great champagne service. I love seeing, um, is it a Girardin, the little silver service, and you open the top. And usually, you know, you'd be at a hotel buffet, and you open it, and there's pancakes. But in your case, <laughs> you open this, and there's, like, this glistening, gorgeous caviar. Yeah, and it's small. It's, you know, a little bit larger than... Than a silver dollar, I would wow. say. Wow! Yeah. Imagine if you had caviar <laughs> oh, that was man. the size of this. That's pancake. a good idea. Yeah, we're wow. getting my credit on that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what caviar do you use? Um, so we work with California Caviar, um, actually, which is a, a caviar company that is led by an incredible woman, this woman Deborah, um, who really revitalized American caviar, and she. Um, we work with her because she is truly an expert. We can we know that everything that we source from her is of the very, very best quality. She works very closely with domestic farmers as well as those internationally. Um, and we, at the moment, we serve three different price points of caviar. We do an entry-level whitefish that is very small and kind of similar in size and shape to Tobiko Row, um, but it is bright orange and briny and delicious. Um, we also do a hackleback for people who love just like traditional black caviar. Um, and then we do a golden ocetra for those who are looking to really treat themselves. And so all of our caviar service is done with creme fraiche, chives, and a big bowl of Lay's potato chips. <laughs> potato chips and caviar uh, and champagne. Perfect. Yeah. On the show, we ask, I always ask us to nominate a woman to the Food Hall of Dames. And you work with dozens of extraordinary women. And I wonder what singular woman has inspired you? I think if I look at all of the women across the food spectrum, the one who's probably most inspiring to me is Tracy Desjardins. Um, I've known Tracy for a long time. Uh, when I was working with Danielle for the Boku's Door, Tracy was very, very involved. And she has always been so incredibly supportive and, um, and championing of other women in the space and also just of really great food. And Jardinaire this year is celebrating its 20th anniversary. Wow. Congratulations, Tracy. That's great. Really, really incredible. It's such a beautiful space. It's right in the heart of Hayes Valley, which is the neighborhood where I have my restaurant, where my fiance has my restaurant. And she really was a trailblazer in the area. And um, Jardinaire is one of those places that truly is a community center for people who are going to, whether it's pre-theater or the opera or the jazz center, or um, just people going out to treat themselves. I think it is, you know, um, such a shining light in San Francisco, and so many people have cooked with her. And the thing that I just love so much about Tracy is her her generosity and her her willingness to, to share and collaborate. Um, and she is one of those incredibly powerful women on the food scene in San Francisco. What do you think has made Jardinier so strong for the 20 years? Um, I think that it knows exactly what it is. And, it, and what is that? It is California fine dining. Okay. Um, and it is about providing an experience for guests that is, you know, somewhat decadent, I would say. Um, and that is... That is really about um, luxuriously treating yourself, and it's about special occasions. You've created 
a bar that is an everyday special occasion. Oh, so thank you, Dana. The idea that you are sort of in the same neighborhood and she is someone you admire makes a lot of sense to me. Everyone, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Jen, if people want to find you, where can they find you? So uh, you can find us at theriddlersf.com, and you can also find me on Instagram at Jen Pelka or Magnum PR. And this is your host, Dana Cowan. You can find me at FW Scout or at Speaking Broadly. I want to thank my amazing engineer today, Vitor Hirsch, who came and... Uh, helped out. All of my shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find them on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love if you subscribed or give me feedback. Tell me someone you would like to propose for the Food Hall of Dames. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.